Hi, everybody. It's Michelangelo Caruso. Welcome to the podcast. This is the Talk to Me podcast. I'm on with Andy Cave, everybody. Andy has a most interesting name, not just because it's a, a noun, and not just because of what he's famous for, but also for what he started his career doing. How are you, Andy? I'm very well, thank you, Michael. Yeah, we had the pleasure of meeting at an event that we both spoke at, and I was just so taken by your speech. You are um, not known, perhaps, to the average person in the world, but in mountain climbing circles, you're, you're a thing. Apparently so, yeah. No, I mean, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, in the States and um, sort of globally, really for, I think, pioneering. I mean, um, trying routes that have never been climbed before uh, on the biggest stage, which, of course, as you know, the Himalayas and also up in Alaska and Patagonia. Yeah, good for you, man. Um, and also, um, your last name is fascinating to a lot of people because of how you got started in life in coal mines, not actually on the top of the world, but perhaps on the bottom of the world. Talk a little bit about your background, your family, where you're from, and what led you to your passion of mountain climbing. Yeah, I left school at 16 in the 1980s, and there was a big recession in the United Kingdom. It was very difficult to get work, and uh, uh, my, you know, I had five generations of coal mining behind me, and so I just followed in the family tradition. Right. And 16 years old, took my first ride uh, on the lift, uh, underground, 3,000 feet, to the lowest seam of a coal mine in Yorkshire, about two hours north of London. And it was an incredible uh, journey, uh, that, that work that I did, um, working with men in very isolated places. And I think, looking back on it, you can see it in two ways. Um, on the one hand, it was a, a tough start in life. It was dirty, dark, dangerous. But on the other hand, it taught me so much about, you know, resilience, overcoming difficulty, and working together, collaborating, and the feeling that we're all in this together. And in a sense, maybe similar to, you know, people that have been in the military, very tight-knit group. Um, if something goes wrong, there's no rescue team coming, you've got to sort it out for yourselves. And actually, later, when I became an alpinist and started climbing in the big mountains, I realized that all that stuff in the early days was incredibly useful if you like, the mindset, as well as all the use to the, the physical work, of course. Dirty, dark, and dangerous. Uh, it's an ominous start. It sounds like American politics, Andy. Wow. I don't know if we want to go there. No, we, we don't. Go <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, House of Cards or something. But you mentioned, uh, you mentioned mindset and how interesting it is that this and I've been in a diamond mine in South Africa when I was there in 1995. I didn't go down very far, but it was the most unusual experience. I can't, I can hardly, and I'm a pretty good speaker. I can hardly talk about it because of the sensation I had being that, that far down into the earth. That's a claustrophobic. That's uh, dark. It's uh, no space. It's the opposite of what you find as an alpinist, uh, wide open spaces lots of light, if you happen to be climbing during the day. Uh, is, it, is it all mindset? Is it, is it one setting in your head? Mindset? Flick? I, I think, you know, people talk about where I get my motivation from. And obviously, you know, I'm a motivational speaker. But at this time of year in the autumn, um, over here, like where you are in the States, um, if you're working on the day shift, you go underground, it's dark. When you come out of the mine, it's dark. So you only see the sun on a Saturday and a Sunday. And so that is very powerful. And then once I got introduced to climbing, 
I'd already been mining for about a year. It was incredible to be out there in these national parks, uh, modest small hills. I mean, we're not talking El Capitan here. You know, these things are, are much smaller here where I live. Mm -hmm. But it was fantastic. And also what happened there was I had a different view um, of the world because I was meeting a lot of people suddenly who'd been to university, had traveled the world. And so there was a path to um, explore a different way of living. And so I was for a while living in almost two worlds, that sort of very close knit mining community. But then at the weekends going out with, uh, you know, I guess more middle-class people uh, who had traveled the world. Um, and so it was a fascinating uh, forming time. I'm intrigued by what, what draws what might be characterized as normally sane people to dangerous activities. It's, I imagine it's difficult to be insured in the mining business. It's probably difficult to be insured as a mountain climber. Let's start with a basic question. Is it dangerous? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I always, now I'm a parent myself and I look back and I think, holy smoke, you know, I was, my mother never wanted me to be a miner. My dad was like, well, it's a job. And then I left mining and started climbing the most difficult and dangerous mountains in the world. So, you know, um, she must have done a lot of worrying. It yeah. is dangerous, uh, but there's, there's method in the madness, if you like. Yeah, basically, you can go on a mountain and you can reach the top and get back down maybe once or twice by being lucky. But a lot of the stuff I talk about with businesses now is around the concept of enduring success. In a business, you want to be not just good for a quarter or even a year. You're looking for sustained business performance and on a mountain or as a mountaineer i've been climbing for 35 years now leading teams to these mountains you of course need luck with anything in life but you need systems and processes and a mindset and a team ethic that means that um you're not just going to uh you're, you're going to survive number one but hopefully you're going to thrive you're going to get to the tops uh but in order for that to happen there are as well as the hard skill sets how to use ropes and crampons and compasses there's the mindset stuff and most of my clients in business that is the stuff that they're interested in sometimes they just want an inspirational story minor to mountaineer but often they want to dig into that what's all that stuff about what is it that makes um, you know a successful team that, be, that can become uh, you know resilient and uh, can make the right decisions under pressure. Mountaineering, of course, you're always dealing with dilemmas. It's the same in life, it's the same in business. There are trade-offs trade all the time, and I can speak more about those, but the biggest one being, you're trying to climb a mountain quickly because you have limited time, limited resources, there are storms waiting out there, you know, as scary as Brexit, and uh, but at the same time, if you move too quickly and you make a small mistake, it can have big consequences. The stakes are very high. And of course, in business, the stakes are high in a different way. Hmm. So that's a, a very big link. You know, in the States, we, we name our hurricanes. We got in the habit of that a few years ago. We, a, B, C, D, and it changes with uh, gender, right? Wouldn't you just yeah. freak out if, if the next B hurricane was named Brexit? It could be a boy or a girl. It doesn't matter. Absolutely. <laughs> it could be the perfect well. storm. Um, yeah. 
I'm enchanted again by this, uh, the yin and the yang, man, the, the high and the low, the dark and the light, the, the uh, systems and gear versus weather. Because one of them is very predictable. A system is very predictable. By definition, it's predictable. And yet weather and uh, uh, let's call it misbehavior by other people that are climbing can yeah. create real dangerous situations, yeah? Yeah, well, you, you know those two things are linked. So um, because in certain uh, arenas, for example, Mount Everest and uh, Patagonia would be a good case. Patagonia, when I first went there, this is climbing on Fitzroy and Cheratora, uh, which are much lower than Everest, but sheer walls in the very south of Argentina and Chile. It was very difficult to get weather forecasts. So you never knew about the weather. So you're up there on the wall and you're frightened the whole time because you never know when a big storm is going to come in very, very quickly. The furious 50s latitude. On Everest, similarly, there was an element of luck uh, in terms of when to time your summit bid. Now, because of satellite technology, we can get weather forecasts and it's meant that the success rates on Everest are astronomical. But of course, that means, uh, you know, more people, more crowds and who don't always share the same uh, values as a well-trained, uh, long-toothed mountaineer. We have very strict values, I think, that wherever a climber is from, whether it's from the States, China, it doesn't really matter, there's a value system that yeah. it overlaps. And there's also been uh, success in Patagonia, but in Patagonia it's more... Um, experienced climbers because it's very difficult climbing there but on Everest because the angle is actually quite low on Mount Everest ironically the highest mountain in the world is technically quite easy um, but the dangers on Everest are ice falls crevasses at the bottom and of course bad weather and the forecasts are reasonably accurate but if they're out by a day or two then you could suddenly have a lot of people I'm sure you've seen the photographs of maybe over a hundred people trying to climb to the summit and there's only one way up and one way down. They're on the rope. One person gets into trouble. Um, and of course it's all supported by uh, good leaders and also fantastic Sherpas who are actually carrying uh, oxygen uh, for the clients. So it's, um, it's incredible that, you know, somebody with a regular job can do some running and get in shape and can climb the highest mountain in the world. But, we all know that that can fall down when that lack of experience and crucially the value system, number one, survive. We spoke about it earlier. If you come from a non-climbing background and you've told everybody at home, then you want to, you're going to climb this mountain and you come from a different, uh, you know, success driven type culture, you might not think that you might perceive turning around very close to the summit, is failure. But when you've been around the block as much as I have, uh, and you've been involved in as many storms and rescues at 8,000 meters, you realize that um, that's not failure. It's humility, not humiliation, which takes us right to the heart of a key, you know, leadership behavior and very, very subtle. Sometimes to turn around so close to a summit requires, often requires a lot of courage. Um, and for me, because I'm in it for enduring success, I can come back the next year. Of course, sometimes for some of these folk, 
uh, they see it as the chance of a lifetime. And I have also worked as a guide taking people on big mountains. And what you're trying to get is a culture of honesty and openness. And so when people arrive with their own personal agendas, you say, guys, look, we're stronger together. We need to add up to more than the sum of our parts. And the thing is, I can't always see them. You know, we're talking about if you and I were climbing, we're on a 200-foot rope, and you, Michael, go around the corner. A good team is where I trust you to do the right thing, even when I can't see you, okay? That is a very powerful thing in business or in climbing. Um, the problem is when you've got this model, like on Everest or so, where you get, people get strung out across the mountain. The teams are not as tight, maybe, all the time. And um, people are not open. They might have a headache, uh, which tells me that they're potentially suffering from altitude sickness. And a headache at 7,000 meters, when you take that to 8,000, 8,500 meters, can suddenly turn into something else. So um, if you have a culture of openness, hopefully people can put their hand up and talk about that. Uh, but of course, they're worried. They might think that that means the expedition is over. But um, this is very difficult to get this culture of openness. You could call it psychological safety. It's also very difficult to get in organizations. But you're going to get the best performing, safest organizations, whether it's a hospital, uh, you know, or a bank. Yeah. Andy, there's a lot of talk these days about gender differences. Do you think men and women have a different... Uh, communication system or even belief system for things like psychological safety, communication, admitting that you're having a headache. My experience is that even as a mortal, I don't climb mountains, but as a mortal that men are more, I don't know, maybe if, I don't know if secretive is the word, but men are a little bit harder to figure out, maybe not as open about it. I think there's definitely something there. Um, I'm just, you know, like all of us reading up quite a lot, uh, there's a lot of exciting research about the brain, uh, yeah. the, the amygdala, what's going on, the relationship between risk-taking, uh, you know, in business and sport, <clears throat> between the genders. Uh, but that point you've talked about, I think that could be true. Um, yeah. Some of those, I don't know, yeah. ancient sort of roles that we perform um, as men, you know, trying to impress and uh, basically ego and status yeah. are things that are going to be in the way. And, you know, the thing is on a mountain, when there's a high avalanche risk and there's a big storm coming in, the mountain doesn't really care how much experience you've got or not. It's as simple as that. And it doesn't really matter what your ambition is. And as a young guy, as a climber, I'm sure I have pushed the envelope. Sometimes looking back, doing the north face of the Eiger as a 20-year-old kid from a mining town, when I look back, my experience was pretty limited. But, um, you know, <clears throat> testosterone-fueled stuff. But um, maybe I was lucky, lived through those times, and now I can see it with, uh, you know, more experience, more measured. And these are the, some of the things that I try to pass on to young mountaineers. Yeah. You know, so many uh, comparisons to airplane travel and airplane you said something a minute ago about how uh, the mountain doesn't care. I heard somebody say one time that in a storm, and I actually saw a video one time of a plane 
with the wings moving like this in the storm. It, it looked like the thing was going to just bust up. But the airplane itself is built for storms. It's supposed to flex like that. It's called turbulence, and we expect it. Um, also, with regard to airplane crashes, the airplane is loaded with redundancy by law. And uh, we, if you study like black box recordings and stuff like that, so many times it's, it's, a, it's the system broke down because of human error. It's because of mindset or something went wrong with communication between the pilot and the co-pilot. When, when we talk about climbing, is it more a system problem or a mindset problem when things go wrong or both? Yeah, well, that's an, a great point. I was talking about this in London yesterday. Um, it is a process from flying an aircraft, and um, there are obviously all the stories of where it's gone wrong and, and, and people have ignored the instruments or, right. lost, you know, status, um, all kinds of issues. I think there's an element of that in climbing, but I think more there's the element of unusual contexts arising time and time again. So that might be more closer to somebody, a leader in a military situation where suddenly something unravels that you're not expecting. You have got the training and you've got the processes, but you now suddenly into new territory. Yeah. Um, um, you know, on a mountain, you may have been there many, many times before you prepare the team, the equipment, you try and plan for the day. But when you arrive there, you see something different in the field, the snow, conditions are different somebody in the team is not behaving as they normally do etc etc and it's how you respond to that i think having that sort of uh intelligence to uh adapt to very subtle changes um in the environment so yeah. i i get that there are similarities uh but ego and status would probably be issues in all those worlds, whether that's an aeroplane, a surgeon in a hospital. I do, I've done quite a lot of work with um, teams in hospitals and analyzing, you know, why things went wrong um, uh, or, or why there are sort of, you know, culture of bullying or, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's to do with the initial training. When you're trained as a pilot or as a mountain guide or as a surgeon um, or as an army leader, that element of humility is absolutely vital um, because, uh, A, you don't want to be burying your head in the sand if you have um, unfavorable snow conditions um, or, you know, enemy gunfire, I would imagine. I've never experienced that myself. Um, but also there's the, um, there's the mindset element as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, humility, I mean, just one example is when we're testing mountain guides, what, what actually happens is that the individuals are put under immense pressure um, in the hope that they will make small mistakes. Um, and the, the idea is, for example, if you're navigating in Scotland in wintertime, very, very bad conditions. You can't see anything. It's the middle of the night. You make a small error navigating. If you don't hold your hand up and say, I think I've made a mistake, you'll be asked to, okay, now take me to the next place. And of course, mathematics it becomes compounding and suddenly you are very, very lost. What you hope is that people as leaders can put their hand up, which is a loss of face, an element of shame because you're supposed to be an expert. But you can put your hand up and say, guys, really sorry, I think we're going to have to go back. And that to me tells me a hell of a lot of, uh, about a person 
if they can do that. I'm not talking about incompetence. It's that courage thing again. I like what you said earlier about humil humility versus humiliation. They, they share the same root word, but they're drastically different concepts. You know, in, um, in the uh, study of airplanes in this communication issue, and we see this in the military, we see it in operating rooms, there's usually a higher ranking person. On mountains, I suppose, there's usually a higher ranking person, yeah? The guide? Sure. And, uh, and I tripped on this thing that, that uh, behavioral psychologists call mitigated or mitigated uh, language, it's called. A yep. uh, quick example, uh, the pilot radios down to ATC and says to ATC, uh, air traffic control, um, hey, listen, uh, we're going to have to land soon. We're running low on fuel. And ATC hears this and says, well, who is it? By definition, every aircraft that's in the sky is running low on fuel. ATC does not give clearance for the plane to land. The plane crashes into a mountain. It's actually happened. Right. So this idea of communicating, and, and this goes back to your work now as a leadership consultant, of getting people to communicate without using mitigated language, without being specific and not general, and hoping the other person can decode what you've said, is extremely important, yeah? Absolutely. I mean, communication goes right to the heart of it, as well as all the mountaineering stuff. Uh, my PhD was actually looking at uh, sort of communication and also group identity in businesses. Um, so pretty much every um, business job I come across, when you drill down to it, there's some sort of communication issue. Yes. Uh, people, for example, not realizing that a piece of information, it's not just nice to know, it's need to know. That's, That's right. another, you know, and we need to upgrade this. It's, it's um, you know, we have so much technology, but, fewer and fewer sort of face-to-face -face meetings. Um, so communication really, yeah, goes to the heart of it. Um, there was something I, I made a note of actually, which is, is, was around that. I'm just trying to, I think I've lost it, but it'll come back to me around that very specific thing. That's okay. Um, you know, while you're thinking, uh, some of this stuff, you know, you, you think it's common sense that the average person would say, yeah, of course we need to openly communicate. Some people actually do think they openly communicate and they don't. You mentioned time earlier, not only on the mountain, but in other places where time becomes a, uh, a critical component. So if I'm in a hurry and I don't have time, I feel I don't have time to communicate, I, I, I skip things. I skip saying things that I might normally talk about. Um, and I think in bis American business, certainly probably business all over the world, there's a rush to do things. There's a rush to keep up with the competition. We're rushing to market. We're... Uh, we're trying to be a flip and, and uh, slide during our meetings where we don't, we don't want to have to fully explain ourselves, so we try verbal shorthand. I think all of us are, are uh, uh, you know, uh, all of us yeah. can be victims in this way. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, you know, a lot of organizations are using, uh, you know, things like Slack. I don't know if that, you know, or, or, or systems like that that can help. You know, I've done a lot of work around values, for example, sort of bringing values to, you know, you know, how we do things around the workplace. Right. Yeah. My stories of values on the mountains and it's great, you know, and a lot of, a lot of businesses do that, but it's how do you bring those to life? Yeah. And, um, you know, Slack can be a really good way. We're all rushing around, but how do we uh, communicate well and, and share that vital information? You bet. I'm speaking with Andy cave, everybody, Andy cave at co.uk. 
Uh, Andy, you mentioned earlier that uh, you were talking about Mount Everest and the odds of climbing Mount Everest. You used the word astronomical. Just to clarify, uh, I think what you might what you're saying is that it's not that difficult to climb Mount Everest if you have a good guide, a good system, good training. Was I reading you right? Yeah, I mean, basically what you're paying for, like the really good outfitters, you pay a lot of money because you get more oxygen, which is yes. going to give you and better Sherpas. So you're going to have a, a far greater chance of reaching the summit. Okay. Um, and I talked about the pressure and, and I think that difficulty for some people, obviously, if you pay, you pay a lot of money for these trips. Yeah. You think it's the trip of a lifetime so you're probably not inclined to turn back even if the weather uh is is bad uh, or you're not performing well the biggest problem of course is crowds you might be doing really well but someone has an incident in front of you or behind of you they can block the pathway and suddenly you can be you know up up on the mountain for longer yeah, the famous example on Everest is, uh, I forget what the last little stretch is. Uh, what's the name? This is the yeah. summit? Yeah, you have the South Summit and then the Hillary Step above the South Col, which is and, a real bottleneck. And you have to wait for people to come down the rope before you can go up to summit. And, you you know, the clock is ticking and weather may be cooking. Uh, yeah, it's a delicate situation. Let's stay with Everest for a second. 1996 was, I think, the, the deadliest season on record for Everest well-documented in John Krakauer's Into Thin Air. There have been movies about it. Uh, systems breaking down, mindsets breaking down. They had, they had one of everything go wrong in that climbing season. Um, and also one guy in particular, I remember, had done a second mortgage on his house, and Rob Hall was reluctant to disappoint his client, is, is kind of the way it was explained in the book. Yeah. Do you, you remember, uh, do you have a... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, talk about. Yeah, I mean, the, the you know, uh, the, the the problem is with um, that situation, that context. It's it's very difficult for us to imagine. If as non-climbers, I am a climber, but it's very difficult uh, to imagine uh, what's happening up there. I mean, essentially, you have about a third of the available oxygen. So, if someone took a blood sample from your blood at eight thousand meters. Uh, you know, if that sample was in a hospital, you would be put into intensive care, as we call it uh, in, in, in the UK. Um, you would be an emergency priority. And there you are trying to work as a leader, okay, and manage all these competing demands. Uh, very, very difficult, very wow. difficult and can lead to tragic situations. And I go back to the point that courage, humility, to turn around and, you know, being a leader... And it's not always easy to get it right, is but it's it's about making the big decisions. Sometimes that's about telling people you have to go down, uh, and um, you know, and, and that's a huge thing to do that. Yeah, yeah, I don't imagine they like to hear it, even if it's even yeah. if it's necessary advice. And sometimes you have yeah. people who are low on confidence, uh, who you know you think you know you've got to push on. You can do this as well. So you have two sides of the coin. But Everest, when you're that high, you don't need much to go wrong. Even though technically it's easier than, you know, some of the other mountains, K2, Gashabruns. But the body's really out there. There's not much oxygen. The temperatures, the crowds now. Um, it's a very delicate situation, as you say. So it's still a huge achievement. And um, you, you don't want to be up there in the death zone for too long. No, no. 
You've had an amazing climbing career. Before we wrap up and talk more about your books and your leadership uh, training and that sort of thing, uh, do you have a highlight achievement? I've discovered when I talk to people of, of uh, note that uh, when I guess at what, you know, maybe they've got this famous thing that they've done, like they've won an Oscar. But when you ask them, they, it's not the Oscar at all. It was something else. What's your, what's your biggest, what are you most proud of in the climbing specter? I mean, you know, one one element would be that I'm still climbing and I'm I'm fit and I'm healthy and I'm really uh, and I still love it. I feel very lucky that I found something that I just love it. Yes. And, uh, you know, obviously, as you get older, you you have to adapt, and it's become more or less about maybe all out difficulty, but about places I would really like to go. So, I've never been to Antarctica. I would love to go there. I've never been to Greenland. There are parts of the States and the Sierras. Uh, Sierras, I've never been. Yeah. Uh, up in BC, um, <clears throat> so many places. But looking back, I think um, there are climbs in the Himalayas, a number of climbs I've done there that looking back on them now, we were really pioneering. We were really pushing out uh, the boat, you know, in terms of not just what we climbed, but how we climbed it. Going back to the, le the leadership point, I have climbed in that, um, you know, militaristic, if you like, control and command model where I'm in charge quite a lot as a mountain guide. But I also climb with friends and we're equals. And that's a different, more of an agile leadership model where we climb in alpine style. Very small groups of people. We don't have a lot of money. and We're going to do things that have never been done before. And it's a very different culture. Of course, first of all, there you, you are, it's your dream team. You're able to recruit, headhunt, people that you've worked with before, high levels of trust, understand roles clearly, <laughs> excuse me, everybody is up for the challenge uh, and you've seen each other under pressure. So I know I haven't really answered your question, but... Um, no, you're doing good. Some of the climbs that I did with those people in Alaska, Mount Kennedy in Alaska and um, Changabanging the Himalayas were amazing. And uh, some of them are still unrepeated. Some of them have been repeated, but, you know, 20 years later. So I think, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think there's some pride there in, in the courage to be prepared to fail as well. Because when you're trying something that's never been done before, you, you're not asking yourself the question of, can I climb this mountain, me and the team? You're sort of asking, like, can anybody do it? You don't know. And the only way that you can find out is to set off and commit. And of course, commitment has different <clears throat> levels. There's the commitment, you know, at home in the UK in a pub after three beers saying, yeah, great, let's go. It looks fantastic. <laughs> but then there's the commitment when you get to base camp and you see the mountain in the flesh and you're like, holy smoke, that's big. Yeah, yeah. And there's the final commitment, which is you actually start climbing it, which is huge. Yeah, well put. Um, speaking of things that have never been done before, there's a, a hot new movie out called Free Solo featuring Alex. Uh, is it pronounced Hanold or Hanold? We say Hanold in the UK, but, you know, you and I will probably have different. Uh, I, I think I don't know how you guys say, but I think Hanold. Yeah. OK. <laughs> and so. Uh, he climbed El Capitan, which is in Yosemite in the United States. Um, 
free solo is the term, of course, that describes no ropes, no, no anything, really. It's kind of like freestyle. I, I saw the movie. I, was, I don't know much about climbing, but I was blown away by a number of things. The, number one, that he would do it alone. He's got no support at all. Uh, number two, that he lives the lifestyle. Um, he lives out of his van. Uh, there was a big thing in the movie about how his girlfriend is just, you know, frightened to death that he's going to die one day. This guy's a real, uh, a real, I don't know. He, he's an outlier. Is he? Even for a climber, totally. So I think, you know, if you like, a lot of people who are not familiar with climbing think, you know, you guys are all adrenaline junkies and that's what it's all about. And of course, you and I have just had a big conversation about all the deeper aspects the hours of training, the 10,000 hours and all that stuff. Right. <clears throat> Alex Arnold is special, not just because of his technical uh, climbing ability and his uh, physical capability. He's obviously a fit athletic guy, takes it seriously. But his brain and his personality, which allows him to do this sort of stuff, is very rare. And... Uh, you know, I did a little bit of climbing without ropes when I was younger on smaller things. But it's never really interested me. I mean, I actually like the companionship and the teamwork. Yeah. And it's fascinating to climbers and non-climbers. What is driving the guy? I mean, the section in the film about his amygdala. <clears throat> yeah. I thought was really interesting. Um, yeah. You know, was, was that a nature-nurture thing? What's going on? Because <clears throat> to be able to do, especially the really difficult section high up, um, you know, is, is quite something. And wow, I mean, even just to, to film it, the cameraman looked pretty stressed. Um, extraordinary film, really well put, fascinating insight into a real outlier. You know, yeah. there aren't many people like that. Um, interesting guy, very different. If you like the other famous thing that went on in El Capitan was Tommy Caldwell and Kevin yeah. Yeoman that did the Dawn Wall. And that... It's a very different uh, thing where that is obviously more about the teamwork and breaking barriers in a different way. Equally amazing. But that's more that I, something I would be interested in rather than the, the soloing uh, element. Yeah. But, you know, fascinating film. Well, you're doing things that, of course, most people will never get to do and uh, for one, I'm grateful because I live vicarious through you, your wonderful talk. I've got your book here someplace. There it is. You see it? The blue one in the center. Yeah, there it is. You got good eyes, baby. Yeah. Um, and uh, I love how now you're doing lectures, leadership talks for um, companies and organizations, motivational talks. You've even got some sort of a course that companies can buy tell us a little bit about what's going on so i think you know like a traditional um journey started out inspirational speaking been doing that for about 10 years uh you know to small audiences big audiences globally um, then i designed a number of workshops specifically around leadership collaboration mm -hmm. um, communication uh, dealing with change and working with a range of, of people um, small groups, bigger groups, ended up on Wall Street with the big banks in the States. I never thought that would happen. You know, if somebody would have said at 16, when I was digging coal, one day you're going to be, you know, doing this kind of work. Um, that has now led on to people saying, look, can we involve you 
uh, and sometimes working in a team of consultants to do slightly longer engagements so that we can get into some detail and some depth, maybe with groups of engineers, take them on a journey so that we're checking in every six weeks uh, working on these elements. And crucially, how can you make it you know, memorable and usable in the day-to-day work? And I think, you know, Michael, one of the things that using an outside lens, uh, in this case it's mountaineering, would be the metaphor, it takes people away from the day-to-day and it makes them feel safer, lets them focus, you know, a little bit outside of work. Yeah. But they often think, wow, you know what? That's just like what we're going through. And it just gets people uh, speaking, you know, cross-functionally in teams, management, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, and very occasionally people will say, can we go out for a walk or can we go outdoors and do a little, you know, some little challenge uh, to tie it in. But most of it w- would be in a, in a sort of inside workshop setting. Yeah. Well, I love your style. I love your message. I love how you're, you're uh, turning people on to the idea of being better than they are currently. And I wish you the best of luck. I hope we get a chance to work together down the road. Thanks, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure. Have a great weekend and uh, let's stay in touch. My pleasure. Uh, It's Andy Cave, everybody. Uh, uh, I think uh, he's got two books out. The one that we're talking about today is Learning to Breathe. And you can find out more at andycave.co.uk or, of course, pick up the book on Amazon. Thanks for all you do, Andy. You're welcome. Thank you. See you. Bye.